the more and more I read the scriptures, this is what I'm utterly convinced of, guys. That, that the one-sentence synopsis of Genesis through Revelation is this. Speaking the truth in love. Everything else is just commentary around that idea. Go ahead, prove me wrong. <laughs> right? That's how I feel about it. I feel that confident. Speaking the truth in love. That sums up the church's reason for existing. The purpose of the mission. What we do, everything we've been instructed, every letter Paul's ever written is literally founded in this concept. What stirred this in me is I started to think about like spiritual warfare, the idea. Last week we had a great uh, guest speaker from uh, Bert's crew um, that spoke and um, he talked about uh, he had some prophetic insight that there was, you know, occultic opposition against us. And uh, that's not new news to us. We've known that for, I don't know, as long as we've existed. Uh, before we were a church, when we were just the beginnings of Youth Storm, when we were just doing camps and rallying uh, people together, when I was still living in the basement of my parents' house, newly married, so this is 22 years ago, Sean called us up one time. It was like 2.30 in the morning or 3 in the morning. And I like groggy and I woke up and I answered the phone and he was like somewhat panicked on the other end. He was like, Steve, listen, you got to pray now. I was like, what's going on? I just had uh, a dream and some people called me and it's it's serious. We're under attack. I'm like, what? What? (laughs) He's like, so he was talking about this dream he had where basically there was, we were in a church and the person up in the front who was speaking was wearing like a yellow and black polka dot shirt, which, you know, the colors symbolize like cowardice and fear mixed together, whatever. And these two people in long trench coats just burst through the back doors of this like old chapel type building and they split in the back and they were walking up the front one on each side and they were walking with their head down and their hands were out bent backwards like this and they were chanting curses all the way up. And he was like, we're under attack, right? And I remember like, He told me that, and I hung up the phone, and I was paralyzed with fear. When I I mean physically paralyzed. I could not move. I could barely breathe, and I had no idea what was going on. I felt like I was a prisoner in my mind. Melanie woke up. She's next to me, newlywed. She's like, Steve, who was that? What's going on? And I could not respond. And she started panicking like she thought I was paralyzed. She's like, and I'm like, we got to (laughs) pray like after like a solid three, four minutes. And I was like, got to get out of the bed. It was still dark out. Right. So I get up and we go in the living room and I'm praying. And then he called my mom. My mom came out from her bedroom. We ended up praying till the sun came up and then I had to go to work with no sleep. And I remember thinking like, what the heck just happened? Like, what is it? You had a dream and the devil hates us. Like, it just felt, I was, I was like, and we prayed, and as you pray, you, like, feel like you get more released from that paralyzing fear. And I was like, what happened? Did a devil come on me and paralyze me? Is he allowed to do that? Did the Holy Spirit who lives within me allow that to happen? And I wrestled with that for a minute. I was like, no. What happened was, fear paralyzed me. I was paralyzed by fear. And it was a gripping fear. And I remember wrestling through that. And ever since, I've never had that experience since. And we've not stopped being under attack. Been under attack ever since. And this is not new. And I just started, what does spiritual warfare look like for me? Where have I seen the fruit of it in my life? Where have I seen the Lord's hand protecting me? Where have I seen the, the work of the Lord tearing down the strongholds of the enemy around us? 
And just, I was stirred to it. And everywhere I look, it's simply this, the truth in love. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Right? The truth. The truth is the truth. It is the, it is the primary weapon of the Lord and of the church. He tells us in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And also the church is the fullness of Christ on the earth. Also the church is the very witness of Christ on the earth. This is the truth. You can't escape it. I challenge you when you read your Bible, put the word truth and love in your mind as you're reading it. And it will begin to stand out in every other verse you read. You'll see them in the New Testament. Just... I was like, you know what I want to do? I just want to read Ephesians all the way through and have that be the message. And I was like, but then I want to read like Romans all the way through and let that be the message. Because it's really hard to say it any better than Paul does. You can't. So I was like, how do I bring this out? But I want, I want you to begin to see this. The truth in love. Because the enemy has already been defeated. Does anyone actually believe that? That on the cross, Jesus actually completed the work. The enemy was actually defeated. He actually descended. He actually took captivity captive. He stole the keys of hell and death in the grave. And then he gave gifts to men. And he paraded the enemy behind him. And then he said, here, I'm giving all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, in my name, go and do these things. Conquer, defeat, overcome. But then he tells us how to do it, and we miss it. We miss it maybe because we focus on like kind of the Hollywood experiential stuff too much, right? That when we're, when we're tearing down strongholds, there should be beams of light coming down and some orchestra music starting to rise in the background. And, and then if that doesn't happen, we're like, what happened? When if you look at Scripture and what it says, it tells us this, that, hey, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning they're not the way you typically think. They're not physical. They're not swords, guns, weapons, like you're not doing this because our our battle isn't against flesh and blood. That's what Ephesians 6 tells us, right? But our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God for a specific purpose, tearing down strongholds and any thought that tries to exalt itself above the knowledge of God. Wait, above the what? Above the presence of God? Above the spirit of God? Above the love of God? This is the knowledge of God. Everywhere throughout scripture, this is what you see. Everywhere. It's the truth. Hey, don't allow yourself to be taken captive by deceptive teachings, by false doctrines. Instead, be girded up. And I don't want to jump ahead. So listen, we're going to... We're going there. How many of you guys personally know a missionary? Raise your hand if you personally know a missionary. Okay, a little more than half. Okay. How many of you guys are personally a missionary? You're a missionary. You're here today. 10, 12. This is a mindset that I want to shatter in the church. Like, it's like one of my life missions at this point is to shatter that concept That if we were walking in truth as the church, the most eternally epic, powerful force the Lord has ever established on the earth, 
then when I say, how many people know a missionary? Everyone raises their hands. When I say, how many people are a missionary? Everyone raises their hands. But that mindset is such a dichotomy in the church and it cripples the church and it handicaps the church and it leaves us existing the way we've existed. And then all our leaders end up burning out because everyone's like, you do the work of the ministry. We'll fund you with our 10% or 8.5% or 3% or 0% because I help out on Tuesdays. Do you understand that we've been given a great commission? It is a commission. It is the mission of the church, of the people of God, of the sons and daughters of the Lord that live and breathe and are meant to lead this place. But we don't own it. We don't own it. So then when we we look at this, so I want to say, look, this thing starts with the mission. It starts and ends with the mission. Jesus, when you got saved, did not take you to be with him immediately for a reason. Because he's not recruiting saved people. He's recruiting workers. He's recruiting missionaries. He's recruiting servants. He's recruiting team members, body members, who will then continue the work that he established. So that upon the rock of the revelation that he really is the Christ, the ecclesia will be founded on that thing. The church, the people of God. And then not even the gates of hell will prevail against this thing. That's the purpose. It's the purpose. But man, what a disconnect between here and here. What a vast disconnect. We have, we should have the full confidence that not even the very gates of hell, and in Jesus' context, he was saying the most wicked place on earth, where the pagans came from, where they worshipped their gods, and where they assaulted the faith from, not even that place will prevail against the church. And we have that type of confidence, and we're still busy playing about what kind of car we want next. And we're too busy playing about our retirement plans. And we're too busy talking about how this person said something that I didn't like and now I'm mad at them and I don't know if I'm going to forgive them yet. (laughs) Such a disconnect. The the vast disconnect, right? But we don't, none of us don't know the mission. It's right there in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Here we are. As you go, make disciples. Baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, into the family of God, that they become name bearers, representatives of the person that they just joined their life to. And then teach them to obey all the things I've taught you. In other words, as I've done to you, do that to others. And then have them do it to others. And then have them do it to others. Jesus, in a nutshell, was saying what he later says in John. As you have been loved, love others. And we know we can't do that. We can't love others if we don't know how we've been loved. If we don't experientially know. Epinosis. Where are my Epinosis fans? Raise your hand. All right. It's a Greek word. It means experiential knowledge, right? 
to experience the knowledge, to integrate it, to walk in it. That's the difference between epinosis and then just gnosis, which is essentially more just your general knowledge, your head knowledge. So here we are. We're meant to walk in this thing. We know the mission, but we don't love the mission. This is why the scripture warns us constantly, do not love the things of this world. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and you're going to despise the other for trying to take you away from the one you love. And so when the opportunity is to come and be part of the mission and to serve on the mission come up and you feel angst or resentment, that's a scary sign that you might be battling against two masters in your heart. But God's the judge, not me. So it's between you and God. The last couple of weeks I've been up here preaching, I've been talking about what moves you, what motivates you, right? And we talked about how we're, we're, we struggle because we're motivated by the wrong things. And the last time I was up here, I talked about how it's, it's love. It's the truth in love that should motivate us. That's what moves us. That what's, that's what loves us. So here, as you can see, the next process in my thought was, well, what moves us to be part of the mission? Why do I want to do it? Why would I want to do the mission instead of going and playing with my friends or going and doing something I want to do or you know, my hobbies or whatever else. What makes me choose this over anything else? What if I want to pursue a career and I know I can be super successful in it and make a boatload of money and pass down a boatload of money to my kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids? All that are good things. But not when they're in contrast or in competition with the mission. If you can see that those things are part of the mission God's given you and you feel called to that, awesome, then you are on point. But if you're feeling conflict between the two, maybe not on point. What moves us? Well, love is meant to be what moves us. That's what we talked about the last time. Genuine love. The type of love, right, that, that is as strong as the grave. Right? <clears throat> Song of Solomon, he said this. It's as strong as death. It's as unyielding as the grave. Many waters cannot quench this love. Many rivers cannot overflow it. A man would happily give every single thing he's ever owned and earned in exchange for this love. Happily. I've built up a, a real estate empire. Take it all. I finally, at this stage of my life, have worked hard enough to earn my favorite cars. Take it. And give me this love. And I will consider it a steal on my part. That's what he's communicating. That's what he's emphasizing, this Hebrew word, ahava, which is such, it's a possessive, all-consuming love. Anyone who's ever been in love in those early days, you know nothing else mattered. It consumed your thoughts. It was your mission. That person was your mission. They were your thoughts. They were your, just listen to, to love songs, right? The, most of the love songs out there, I have always had a hard time singing about my wife because they're too over the top. They, they, could, they only belong to the Lord. That type of devotion, that type of, of commitment like belongs to the Lord and Him alone. And then from there I will love my wife as if unto the Lord. 
But that's the human experience of Ahava. And this is the Lord's experience. It's why he put Song of Solomon right in the middle of the Bible. It's just a commercial. Right in the middle of the love story. Genesis to Revelation. Boom, boom, boom. Song of Solomon doesn't mention the Lord. Doesn't mention God. Doesn't mention prayer. It is literally just a natural love song between a man and a woman. And God is like right in the middle of my Bible. Right in the middle of the word. Why? Because Genesis to Revelation is a love story. It's a passionate story of the pursuit of God after the ones he loves who keep rejecting, rejecting him until in the end in Revelation when they finally look and they say, behold, the Lord dwells with his people and they dwell with him and he is their God forever. Right? That is the scene at the end. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? That's the idea, right? This love. But if we don't know this love, then we're not moved by it. But we are moved by the things we love. And that's why Jesus said, one master. Right? Where your treasure lies, that's where your heart is. Is the Lord's glory. Is the Lord's expansion. Is the Lord's fame where your treasure lies. Do you really feel like that's your treasure? That's your inheritance. That's what you're living for. Everything else is bonus and blessing that can be here today and gone tomorrow. You may be in abundance today and in lack tomorrow. And you are unmoved because your treasure has not moved. You now have different tools. You may have lesser tools. You may have better tools now for the mission. But your treasure has not moved. That's what moves us. But then you say, okay, love. Love means so many different things to so many different people. Love to some people is a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. Love to other people is, hey, you took care of my car for me. Great. Sure, love has many different expressions. We've talked about it before. The four Greek words for love that really do a good job of breaking down the different expressions of it. Where in the English, we just use all of it together one word, love. And we think it covers everything. And because of that, because of that general topic, we can make ignorant statements as people like love is love, right? Yeah, awesome statement. That was deep. (laughs) Love is love. A dog is a dog. When you're hungry, you're hungry. But they say it as if it's this powerful, insightful trump card meaning. It's like, well, I love my pencil. It's my favorite pencil. And I love my dog. And I love my children. And I love the Lord. Are you telling me that's the same? No, because there's different words that mean different things. There's affectionate love. There's sacrificial love. There's brotherly love. There's, there's jealous love. There's romantic and sexual love. And there's all these different expressions of love. But in this context, we want to talk about what does it look like to love the Lord? Jesus tells us that if you do love me, if the truth is that you exist from a place of loving me, the fruit of that will be to obey my commands. That's what he says. I wish there was a way to to make that softer or easier, but it's not. Just don't read it backwards. He's not saying, prove that you love me by obeying my commands. It's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying, pass any tests. He's saying, you love me or you don't. I just want to know if you do. If you do... Awesome. Now let's work together because the natural outworking of that is you're going to want to be with me. You're going to want to walk with me. You're going to want to obey. You trust me wholeheartedly. So you'll obey what I say, trusting this is the wisest, most accurate, best path. And so you obey him as the natural outworking of this love. 
And if we assessed our lives and if we assessed each other as a body, we'd probably find that we come up really short of that definition. And so I said, so what would it look like for the church to walk in this love, right? They will know that you are mine, is what Jesus said, by your love one for another. That's the great command. Jesus says, and my command is this. This is what we talked about the last time. If you remember, I emphasized this over and over. When Jesus is like, hey, here's the great command, but here's my command. To love me is to obey my command, and here is my command to you. Love one another. It's, it's really simple, guys. It's really simple. But you know what the hardest thing you'll ever do? Is to love one another. Because one another are annoying, and they are uh, they are selfish, and they are blind and pig-headed sometimes and really, really hard to serve and love and care for, right? We're all in the one another. Every one of us is a one another to someone else. This is what we're living in. This is the reality. This is the rubber meeting the road. This is the church being the church or not being the church. We either show the world who Jesus is accurately in the truth or we show the world some disgusting, perverted version of it. And that's heavy knowing that we are meant to be the pillar of truth on the earth for them to see it. It's a heavy responsibility. To me, though, this love looks like worship. And again, here's another thing. So we got love means, means everything to everybody. Worship means different things to everybody. To most of us, worship means what we did before this. Whenever we worship, we're like, what worship songs am I going to play today? I want to read, read this scripture to you. I already, well, I quoted 2 Corinthians 10, so we don't have to read that one. Um, <clears throat> all right. We'll read the, uh, the Romans. Go to Romans, end of 11. I want to give you context before we hit Romans 12, because a lot of us know Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a popular scripture. Some of us have it memorized, but we don't have Romans. Yeah, that's right. Some of us have memorized, right? That's right. At least I know there's at least three people in our church that have Romans 12, 1 and 2 memorized. <clears throat> but I'll bet none of us have Romans eleven thirty three to 36 memorized. <laughs> I'm going to read that. This is what he says. He's singing a quick hymn before he goes into it. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. There's that term again, guys. The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. It's all throughout the New Testament. Also, if you read Jeremiah, it's his favorite theme. It's his favorite theme. When you read Hosea, it's the major theme. My people don't know me. Jeremiah, for my name's sake, because my people don't know me. Here in the New Testament, Paul is singing a song, Oh, the depth of the riches. He's saying the, the depth of the value of this stuff that I've experienced in my life. Of what? Of both the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments are and how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, he's supreme. 
Who has ever first given to him or has, has to be, where he has to be repaid? No one. For, 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 it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So therefore, since that's true, to him be all the glory. Whether good things came from him or they returned to him as they all will do, it doesn't matter, to him be all the glory. Then he goes into this. Therefore, does everyone know therefore is a really serious word when Paul uses it. This is his transition word saying, I just gave you the reason and now I'm going to give you the, the proper response to the reason. Therefore, brothers, by those great mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Or in some translation, it says, this is your reasonable worship. I didn't see anything about um, Hillsong in there. I'm saying this. Did Paul quote a hymn right before? Yes. Because music is a part of worship. It is one of a million different ways to express worship. But Paul is getting right down to the definition of worship. And he's using, he's using priestly sacrificial language and imagery to convey this. He says, by the mercies of God, I'm urging you to present yourself as a living sacrifice, which to them means something. When they brought sacrifices to the Lord, they weren't allowed to bring dead things. They weren't allowed to bring things that had already been used or sacrificed or killed or anything. They weren't allowed to bring spotted things or used things or lesser things. They had to bring the best of the best, the perfect, the spotless, still living, meaning still holding its full value, to the altar. And they had to willingly and joyfully offer this thing and make sure that the sacrifice was holy before the Lord and that it would be pleasing to him. That's the imagery of a sacrifice. So when Paul is saying this, he's counting on them picturing this. Not the sacrifice of, you know, I'm not eating steak this month as a fast and a sacrifice to the Lord. Chicken only for me this whole month. Right? Or I'm going to fast the butter off my toast. When I eat toast this month, it's dry. And I am going to share in the sacrifices of Christ this month when I'm suffering Bearing the marks of Christ in my body with him. That's that's not the image he had here, guys. He's saying a living sacrifice. Yourself. He wants you to imagine you're taking yourself, all your desires, all your dreams, all your hopes, all the things you've ever wanted, and saying they are completely and uninhibitedly yours. Right here. And he says this, this is the worship that will be holy and pleasing to the Lord. Sing your brains out. It's fine. Kill as many cows as you want to the Lord. Fine. If you're doing it in faith, great. It's probably pleasing to the Lord. But Paul is saying this is worship. You giving your life entirely and living for the Lord. So this is... I'm not speaking from the Bible here, but when I'm, I'm thinking, I'm brainstorming, like, wait, how do we get it so wrong, right? And I always think, like, 
Why is it Sunday mornings are so powerful for so many of us, right? It's like we come here and we're like, I felt the Lord, his presence, this is amazing. I'm crying and I'm weeping and like, this is awesome. And we think that when we come together, it's super special. And it is. I'm not saying it's not. There is, there is an encounter with God and worship of God when you're corporately together that's different when you're alone. But I think that the reason why this always seems so powerful and special because we don't experience this at all on our own. Because we're not setting time apart like we do on a Sunday morning to wake up, get dressed, drive to a place, focus on one thing while we're here, the Lord together. We just don't do that as a church, as a body, as Christians alone enough or at all for most of us. Where we get in the word and we let the truth speak and we're worshiping the Lord from our heart and we're extending gratitude. We're enter his courts with thanksgiving and we're enter his gates with praise and the Lord meets us in that place and we know he's present with us. And we encounter him in his word and we have these powerful experiences. I think that if more of us did that more consistently on our own, this experience would feel familiar but amplified. And it wouldn't feel like your once a week jolt and reminder that the Lord loves you. That's just a little, that's just my own personal thought. Okay? So, this is what he goes on to say. He doesn't end there. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your Holy Spirit within you. Oh, wait, I misread that. That's not what he said. Oh, by the renewing of your mind. Your mind. Where truth, the the warfare for truth is, where the battle for truth happens. Right after saying, pleasing to God, this is your spiritual worship. Therefore, do not be conformed to this age and its thoughts and its philosophies and its belief sets and its value system. But instead, be transformed. How? How are you going to be transformed into this living sacrifice? By renewing your mind. What value will renewing your mind bring? Here's the end of it. By renewing your mind, you will then be able to hear the direction of the Lord. You will be able to hear his voice. I know from experience talking to so many of you, we struggle recognizing the voice of God from all the other dominant voices in your mind. And he's saying, if you do this, you'll be able to discern the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God for your life, for your warfare, for your intercession, for your prayer, for your career, for your direction, for your children, for your family. You will be walking with the Lord who loves you. And you will be hearing his voice and you will be led by it. But first, you have to offer yourself. As a living sacrifice. And then from that point on, all you do is worship. Do you get what I just said? From that point on, all you do is worship. And when you fall short and you accidentally do stuff that isn't worship, you repent. To the Lord who loves you and says that he's faithful and just to forgive you of all your unrighteousness. If you'll just come to him. While you are still far off, he runs to you and embraces you, right? Like that's the picture of the father when we fall short of living this sacrificial life where we are worshiping him. And then on Sunday we come and we get to 
add to that worship with the body and music and instruments and tools that God's given us to amplify it and make it powerful in a special way. So look, this is where I think, remember the Bible, Paul didn't write it in sections with subtitles, okay? Bunch of people who thought they were smarter than, than Paul put subtitles, And so they say this, it continues by saying, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. And what I'm going to tell you is what I'm reading is what I think Paul is saying the outworking of this sacrificial life looks like, of this life of worship. He goes on to say, with this in mind, as a living sacrifice, holy unto God, discerning what is the good and right and perfect will of God, Do not think more highly of yourself than you should. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So here he is talking about this is the rubber meets the road. This is the love one another section, right? This is the fulfillment of the love one another. And he's saying we have many gifts, but we're all different, but we're part of the individual members of one another. According to the grace given to us, the grace there is the word charisma, where we get gift, right? Given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, then use it according to the standard of faith. If service, that's a gift, guys. If you have the gift of service, then serve according to the standard of faith. If teaching, then teach according to the standard of faith. If exhorting, then exhort. Giving, then do it with generosity. Leading, then do that with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. And love must be without hypocrisy. Do you hear that? He's just telling, we miss this so much because of the stupid subtitles in our Bibles. Make us think it's a different thought or a different focus. But instead, he's just saying, like, look, we all have gifts. This is what loving and worshiping the Lord and loving one another. Hey, do you love me? Yes. Then you'll obey my commands, right? Yes. You've presented yourself as a living sacrifice, and now you worship me? Yes, you're the one I worship. You're the one I love. You're the one I serve. You're the one I obey. So therefore, I will love one another. This is what it looks like. I've given you gifts. Love people. If your gift is to serve, serve people with diligence. If your gift is to lead, lead people with diligence. If your gift is to, to, to prophesy, prophesy with diligence. He's going on this and he says this, because love must be without hypocrisy. Your love can't be hypocritical. In other words, it can't be self-serving. The gifts aren't for you. What you have isn't for you. Your possessions aren't for you. Anything the Lord has given is not for you selfishly. It's a blessing and a, a, it's, a, it's the provision for you to fulfill the mission. Because none of this is coming with you. Your gifts and your rewards, they're storing up where moth can't eat and rust can't destroy. Right? But everything here isn't coming with you, so it's a tool. It's, it's what you need. It's the provision. Like Paul said, in abundance and lack, I'm content because I can do all things through Christ. Okay, this is, this is where we're getting to. So he says, love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another with honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's like his list of like, guys, do all these things. 
as an expression of love. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. And do not be wise in your own estimation. And he goes on to say this at the end. This is how he summarizes it. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now, I'm going to present this as an argument. And I'm not saying it's absolutely fact. I haven't studied this for years and years or anything, but I feel like I saw this. And I was like, there's your spiritual warfare. There's your spiritual warfare, according to Paul. I'll challenge you this. You're not going to find anywhere in the New Testament where Paul binds any devils. Doesn't mean he didn't do it. I'm just saying his focus doesn't seem to be on that. His focus is on this worship, right? And what it looks like. And we sing these songs, uh, this is how we fight our battles, right? That's the song. It's one of my favorite songs ever written. I love part of it and the other part, I'm like, what are they saying right now, right? But it's like, this is how we fight our battles. This is how we fight our battles, right? Right. This is how we overcome. This is how we overcome. And we're like, the answer always is worship. By worshiping the Lord, by being fully committed to him, by entrusting to him, by walking with him, by knowing his will and obeying, right? This is worship. But I feel like when we sing those songs, we think this is how we overcome, by our dancing and our singing. And so many people are like, if you're not dancing and singing, you're not overcoming, I'm like, fine, that might be true because you might not be worshiping. But the overcoming is the worship. This is how they overcame. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. By not loving their lives unto the death. Those three things. The blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony, meaning their expression, which we know Jesus just said is worship. And by presenting their bodies a living sacrifice, they don't love their lives even unto the death. By life or by death, I'm yours. Right? That's what we get. So here's living sacrifice, worship. What does this mean? This is what I want to close on. I totally skipped over the Romans pass. I mean, the, the um, Ephesians passage because time. That's why this is being recorded. So there'll be proof that I went really long. So I can't go really long. <clears throat> Um, but listen, this is what I'm saying. When you go home, when you go home, guys, homework from church, imagine that. Imagine, imagine having homework. Read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 in the context of this message. Just read the whole thing. I'll give you in. Ephesians 6 ends with this passage of Paul talking about the armor of God. And how we don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this age. And then he says, therefore... No, I'm reading that part. Hold on. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. What tactics? Does he have any power over your life? Does he have any power left at all? Can he come and bonk you on the head right now and kill you and drag you to hell if he wants to? No, he can't because if he could, he would have already. Yes, I said bonk. And I pictured like a Mario doing it to like a Goomba. He can't do that. He can't do that. Why? 
Because though a thousand may fall at my side and 10,000 at my right hand, they will not come near me. Right? Because we dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. He is our rock and our fortress and our strong tower. Therefore, what should we be afraid of? Do you understand? That's what it means to belong to the Lord. So Paul here is saying this, though. He's, he's warning their tactics. What are the tactics? I'll give you the tactics. They're the tactics of Saruman, for those of you who know. Okay? But it means his only tactic is deception. He has no power. All he can do is come to you and say, did the Lord really say? Did he really say this? I don't know. If you ask me, you're probably fine doing that. You guys are going to get married anyway someday. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. What? No. Hey, you were justified in that outburst of wrath. They really hurt you. It's fine. You don't need to repent of that. They need to repent to you for making you so angry. I'm just trying to touch on real life deception that happens. Right? That's his power. It's just deception. And so Paul is saying this. So what does that mean? It means falsehood. It means perverting truth. So guess what the medicine to the enemy's only tactic is? Truth. Remember, the scriptures are summarized in this statement. Speaking the truth in love. Being rooted and grounded in love. Being rooted and grounded in truth so that you won't fall prey to deceptive doctrines and teachings and philosophies of this age, but instead you're rooted in the first principles of Christ. This is, this is it. So he goes this. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the world powers and the death and darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Just, I want you to understand the imagery here for Paul. He's saying so you can resist. Resist what? The attacks of the enemy, which should be coming every day if you're, war- if you're worshiping the Lord. Every day. Every day. You can resist them. Right? And he says, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything, take your stand. What, what does that mean? Do you think real fiery darts are coming at you? They're not. It's not flesh. This isn't where the warfare is. He's saying, take your stand. And then he goes on to explain insight, he means stand on the truth. Okay? So he says, stand, therefore, with truth, like a belt around your waist. The first thing on his list, stand with truth as if it's the belt around your waist holding everything else together. And that's the imagery of the armor he's using. We'll get into it some other time. But the Roman armor, everything all rested around the belt. It kept everything tight, kept everything together. You, you were able to hang your sword from it, your battle shield from it. Remember, Romans, we picture the big shields. Battle shields were just the, the round ones that they held like that, okay? And they held on the belt as well. So anyway, insight is cool. With truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you will be able to extinguish the flame Flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with every... Pri- this, so, look at every piece of armor he just described. Every one of them is a defensive piece. And this is what it was. Truth, 
The word there in Greek is logos, which means the word of God. It's the written word, most commonly translated, referring to the written word of God. It says the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. And here, the word translated word is rhema, which means spoken word of God. Okay? So it's kind of the word of God that comes to you in the moment, but it's founded on the logos word of God, the truth that you're standing on. But here's my point. All of those things are the things we just read in the list Paul talked about. Living in these things, the truth, in love, in righteousness, in faith, with your salvation, and your helmet of the gospel of peace. And there's, there's nothing where Paul is saying we need to go hunt down devils and attack them and bind them and cast them into hell. His focus is live as an accurate representation of Jesus. And you will daily do damage to the enemy. Not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against the church, the ecclesia, living the way I've called them to live. In power, in truth. You'll get discernment if you're listening to the perfect will of God. And he'll tell you when someone has a demon. And then you can go cast that thing out. The Bible tells us that every curse that's released against us will be turned into blessing. And I just believe it. Look at at the end of this. This is what Paul says. Paul is saying, do all these, and I want you to pray because I'm in the middle of some spiritual warfare, and watch how I'm fighting it. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit, and stay alert in this, with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel, because I'm an ambassador in change for this. So pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. What's the enemy want to do to Paul? wants to kill him. We know that. But what he really wants to do is shut him up. And Paul is saying, pray for me. Pray for me. The enemy wants to stop me at every turn. He's constantly trying. But pray for me. And this is what I want you to pray for me. Don't pray that the devil won't, that the devil will stop attacking me. Don't pray that the devil won't hurt me. Don't pray that the devil won't come at me anymore. Pray that in the midst of that, I will be able to stand and boldly preach this message as I ought to. That's our focus. So, in closing, in this Ephesians 4 chapter, where we get the idea of God, Jesus giving gifts to men. What time is it? Oh, good. Shoot! So much good stuff in the Bible. All right. In a nutshell, Ephesians 4 is popularly known as the, the chapter of the fivefold ministers, right? But what it really is, is the description of the provision God has given to his church to be what he's called it to be. At the top of this, he says this. There is one, he says, so look. Treat one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. And he goes into this whole thing. The church is meant to be united in love and truth. And that's what Ephesians 4 is about, believe it or not. The the gifts that he talks about, he says, these gifts were given to you to help unite you and build you up in truth and love. You're like, no, it's not, Steve. That's just where we argue about the Greek words to see who's the priority leader, isn't it? No, only, only in our debate classes, right? Here, 
This is what he says. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all. He's above all and through all and in all. And he says, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Each one of us has a gift according to the measure God gave it to us. That's between you and God, what that is. He just expects us to use all of it. And he says this. He quotes the Old Testament. says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity and he gave gifts to people. And we've often read that as if he gave us gifts. New car, uh, new purse, new shoes, whatever looks like a gift to us. This is what he means. But what does he ascended mean except that he already descended to the lower parts of the earth? And the one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he personally gave. This is the part that blows my mind. Paul is emphasizing that this one that descended and ascended to fill all things is the Lord of Lords. And he personally gave gifts. To the church. I want you to get that. And he personally gave these gifts to the church. Some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Why did he give these gifts to the church? For this reason. The training of the saints in the work of ministry. Now, look at the bottom of this picture. See how it says ministry in quotes and service? The word translated ministry there is another Greek word, Sherry. And it means diakonia. It's where we get the word deacon from. It's translated literally service. And it's the word most commonly translated ministry. How many people want to live their lives wholeheartedly in ministry? Yeah, until you find out it means service. Right? In America, we have this problem. Everyone wants to go full-time ministry until you realize it's service. Until you realize it's like taking off your robe, tying it around your waist, getting down at people's feet, scrubbing their feet clean, changing diapers constantly, fixing problems, breaking up fights. Like, that's everything we just read. Like, loving one another wholeheartedly. That's what this word means. So these gifts that Jesus personally gave to his body were for the express purpose of equipping his people for the work of serving people. For the work of serving. And what are we serving? The mission. What's the mission? To serve the people that God came to die for. The people he rose again were on mission. What did Jesus do? He became the servant of all. And he says, you want to join me on the mission? You get to be the servant of all with me. And he gave these, these five gifts to the church to equip the saints to be those people. And then you're like, why would I do that? Why would you do that? Because he first loved you. Because he loves you. And when you experience that, your response is, take everything I own, what a steal in exchange for this love. What does this love do? What does it look like when someone has this love? It looks like ministry. Service. And this is what Paul emphasized. But watch what he goes on to say. So you full circle. And he pulls it all together. Thank you, Jesus. This is what he says. To build up the body of Christ. 
Equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith, which is the teachings of Christ, this thing, Christianity, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature that gets measured according to Christfulness. In other words, we haven't arrived until we make it to the level of Christfulness. The gifts that God has given us are to be at work full force until the body of Christ has been thoroughly equipped for the work of loving service to him and to others. Until we have grown to the place of maturity. And the maturity looks like this, being united in the knowledge of God's Son. That's what he says. That's how we define maturity. When the body is united in the knowledge of God's Son. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by what? By every wind of teaching. By human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Do you see what he's saying? The whole reason the church is being equipped is so that we'll know the truth and not be little children that are tossed around by other things. But here's, here's the closing right here. With cleverness in the techniques of deceit. That way we won't be deceived. But... Speaking the truth in love, let us grow. Hear that, guys. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow. Let us grow what? In every way into him who is the head, Christ and if you go on to read, that's what I said, read 4, 5, and 6, you'll see he is harping on the truth and the knowledge of God over and over because this is it. And this is the point. God has personally given gifts, influential and powerful gifts to his body so that the church will begin to speak the truth in love and grow into the full stature of Christ. <clears throat> Here's... Here's what I wrestle with. This is what I pray about. This is my constant concern in my heart as someone who, who is called to, to one of these fivefold gifts as a teacher. I feel burdened and more and more every day this increasing burden for the people to be so firmly rooted and grounded in God's love so that they together with the church can know truly what is the height and length and depth and with of that love. And then likewise, I am so burdened for the church to be so rooted and grounded in the truth so that they won't be swept away by all these stupid, clever-sounding but shallow other teachings and deceptions and that our hearts won't be led astray by by the allure of the material and the the possession and success and wealth and all the scorecards that that the, the philosophies of this world would tell us to live by. Instead, we'd be literally consumed with speaking the truth, meaning having to know it first, meaning having to get rooted and grounded in it, unshakable, not in many truths, but in one truth, one faith that has been passed down to us by one God, one Lord, one Father in all, who's in all and of all. It's why I harp so much in all our classes, all our life groups, all our trainings, all our leadership development about if you're not in your word, what are you doing? What are you doing? If you're not in your word and not just to memorize it so you can win a sword drill or something, but to literally behold the face of God. 
so that you can know him. Do you understand? This is it. So that the church will be a body of believers who literally, rightly, and accurately represent Christ to those who are seeking him, even those who don't know they're seeking him. They're seeking him, but they're looking for him in all the wrong places. And we're meant to shine with this light that causes people to say, what must I do to have what you have? So I drew that up. Take a picture of it. Write it down. I don't care. This is like the natural progression in my mind of what it means to love the Lord. What the expression of loving the Lord looks like while we're here on this earth. You know, when we go, when we go to heaven and we're there and we're with him and we're beholding him, it may look drastically different. But for now, for now, we have a few short hours before the dawn in which to win our rewards. That's it. A few short hours left to this age, to this time that we have. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. What's our legacy? What's our legacy going to be? What are people going to say at your funeral about you? Right? Are they going to say he loved the Lord and he loved to make him known? Something in that, in that world? Let's hope so. Let's pray that the Lord makes us those people. <clears throat> like right now, let's do that. <laughs> Let's just begin to pray for a couple minutes and see what the Lord says, what, the do, what he does. We're going to play music while we worship. We're going to pray while we worship. We're going to meditate while we worship. If you feel led to love somebody, love them while we worship. It doesn't matter, but we're going to worship for a couple minutes here and let the Lord's truth sink in. What I pray most is that through this, the Lord would stir a hunger, like, like I picture like this ember being blown into a flame in the center of your heart that burns for a hunger for the truth of who the Lord is, that you would want to know above all things the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God's Son, that you would want to be rooted and grounded, that you would say like Paul did, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His ways. God, we just ask right now that you do that. God, pray. I just ask that what's in my mind, you'd make a reality, Lord. Please just begin to move right now. Begin to stir in everybody's hearts, God, this deep hunger, a vision that they'd see, that you'd open eyes to see, you'd open ears to hear about the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God that you've given us in your word, that you've given us by your spirit, that you generously meet us in, God, with your presence, with your power, with your all-consuming love, God. That because of this, because you have loved us with an everlasting love, we are not consumed, we are not destroyed, but instead you meet us and you pour yourself out to us and you build us up, God. I ask that we would begin to pursue you as a body in a greater way, God, that you'd prepare us for the harvest you're bringing. You'd prepare us for the next season. You would prepare us for the work of the mission that you've invited us to come alongside with you to work in. That you'd stir vision for loving well. You'd stir vision for receiving love from you well. And you'd stir vision for demonstrating that love well as we worship you. God, that you'd, you'd turn our breakfast time into worship. God, that you'd turn our work into worship.
that you turn our hobbies and our fun times and our, our free time, God, you turn them into worship. That we do it in faith. That we'd feel your good pleasure on us as we do it.